Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Last month, Oxford University was given £150 million by a US billionaire, Stephen A. Schwartzman, to study the ethical implications of artificial intelligence. In the announcement, he warned that technology left unaffected would trample over certain aspects of human behaviour and human opportunities. He then set out the potential to reaffirm Western values and help the world adjust to changing times. Which raises the question, whose values exactly would we be reaffirming? We commissioned this week's artificial intelligence issue to explore this question and other surrounding ethics and artificial intelligence. In particular, we asked four writers to reflect on what the Bishop of Oxford has suggested is the deep question of our age. What does it mean to be human? We also look at an extract from a new book by Tom Chivers, who spent months with some of those who have long worried about the existential threat posed by artificial intelligence, and asked him in our podcast, how worried should we be? From drones to Facebook's algorithms, artificial intelligence is shaping the way we live. We hope that this issue will help equip and encourage Church Times readers to join the conversation about the road ahead. So Tom, your book is called The AI Does Not Hate You. Um, and I wondered if you could tell me how you arrived at that title. Um, and if you chose it because you think that a certain inaccurate narrative exists around AI. It's part of a longer quote by one of the key figures in the book, this guy, Eliezer Yudkowsky, who's an interesting and odd man, but his the longer quote anyway is, the AI does not hate you, nor does it love you, but you are made of atoms which you, it can use for something else. The impression that is supposed to give is that, unless we're extremely careful, it is not that the AI will turn rogue or like break its programming or you know achieve uh, self-awareness on in August 1997 and become Skynet or whatever. It's that it will just it will do what it's told and it will and it will have certain goals and those goals may or may not involve us and we could easily be just destroyed as a sort of afterthought you know yeah so that's the idea and i wondered if you could talk about what you think maybe the biggest myth around ai is i had quite a few comments when i was r- r- writing the book from people who said oh so you're writing a book oh, you know so the book is and there's no way of saying this without making it sound quite sort of sci-fi it's like you know, it is about the risk of an ai apocalypse i mean that is really the fundamental thing you mm. know there's a lot it, it, it is basically will ai literally kill everyone um which you know does does always sound a bit yeah crazy in sci-fi um, and perhaps it is but then read the book find out but people would always say so oh, I see yeah like Skynet like like the Terminator I said like, well no because the Terminator is vastly too optimistic with you know we're talking they, they end up with sort of this kind of stupid metal humanoids wandering around with a grinning skull face and trying to shoot people with guns and so no we're dealing with something that would be vastly more intelligent than humans and the idea that it will be any sort of fair fight or there'll be plucky bands of resistance rebels, you know, it just doesn't work. It's much more about, not about the AI deciding that humans are against it. It's just, it's, again, it's about AI doing what we tell it to do. In mm. the, the, the example I give in the book and which actually the people the book is about are much keener on, they prefer that instead of thinking of the Terminator, we should think of Disney's Fantasia. Um, and specifically the Sorcerer's Apprentice, in which Mickey gets the broom to fill the cauldron, and the the broom does indeed fill the cauldron as it was instructed, but because Mickey was not careful about how it gave the instructions, uh, it ends up flooding the entire basement and Mickey nearly drowns and has to be rescued. Um, And in terms of kind of bringing it home for our readers, Mm. um, what are the forms of AI that they are coming into contact with every day? Okay, so the AI... That we deal with every day is 
<laughs> so everywhere that it's hard to sort of tease it out. There's a quote, in, again, in the book, but it's very well known from an AI researcher called John McCarthy, which is, um, as soon as it works, we don't call it AI anymore. So Google's search engine, for, in- for instance, is an astonishing example. I was trying to get hold, get hold of uh, James Lovelock's book about AI for an uh, interview I was doing about, about that recently, and I misspelt um, it's called Nova Scene, and I wrote in Novocaine, like the um, uh, yeah, like like the dental anaesthetic, and uh, it worked out from my search history that I was looking for James Love- Lovelock stuff and had that in the first three or four results, and I was like, that's ridiculous, you know. But, that, yeah. but it knows from my previous actions and all, all all these other things. And then if we look at things like image recognition, which ten years ago. AI could not reasonably tell the difference between an, um, a dog and a cat, or it couldn't easily tell, you know, recognize faces, and yet now it does it. We can get novelty apps on our phone that do it. It was 50, 50 or so years ago, maybe a bit more, 60 years ago, someone wrote in a in a journal of computing, I think, that if, someone, if we design a chess-playing algorithm, we will have penetrated to the core of human intelligence. We did that 20 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, you know, beat the world's greatest player, and no one thinks that's true AI now, but these all these things, all these sort of simple, more narrow, we call them narrow AIs are everywhere. So, so Siri, Alexa, all yeah. the various translation apps, everything, it, it, all these things run on something we would once have called artificial intelligence. And now we just sort of think of as fancy algorithms. Yeah. You know. At the beginning and end of the book, you talk about being told by one researcher, um, I don't expect your children to die of old age. And were you surprised by the emotional impact of, of being told that? God, yeah. Um, sorry. <laughs> sorry, that's probably an appropriate term to use. <laughs> Gosh, yes. I, I, I went to California for a week or so in late 2017 to interview people for this book. And I was aware of all the arguments and all the sort of ways in which it sort of, you know, theoretically made sense. For instance, if you ask most AI researchers, they think that transformative or, you know, genuinely super intelligent AI will arrive in the next 50 to 80 years. You know, I think the, um, the, the sort of median answer, the average answer is they think it is 90% likely by 2075. Now, my kids are three and five years old now. They will comfortably live, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, etc. cetera, um, to 2075. I might live to 2075. And they also think, or from these same surveys, that there is a solid chance, 15 to 20% chance is the sort of uh, average guess, that it will have, and it's in, uh, the, what's, the, what's the phrase, a very bad outcome, brackets, existential catastrophe, which is, translates as everyone dead. You know, and they also, you know, then it also could have these ludicrous positive outcomes, as in everyone uh, lives forever and becomes mm. uh, immortal demigods live, you know. In California, someone said this, and I found myself suddenly sort of gut-punched by it. Mm. Now, on the one hand, I don't want to say that, because I, I don't want to say that I had, the fact that I had this immense emotional reaction makes it any truer, because... I was a long way from home and I was jet lagged and I was missing my children and, you know, all, all these things. But it did really hit home for me for a while. I sometimes try and remember that this is a real thing, a real claim that I'm making about a real risk that real mm. people will be, including my own children, will be facing huge and terrifying or uh, possibly positive changes in the next, you know, within their lifetime. 
there's a lot of philosophy um, in your book, which is your um, background at university. Yeah. Um, and a writer in the Times recently suggested that in Britain we have exiled our intellectuals from public life. Um, so he argued that whereas in France philosophers are celebrated, here we slightly sideline them. I wondered if you think that's true, and is that going to prove a weakness um, if we need to have a wider public discussion about the ethics around AI? Hmm. Okay, so I, I, I'm extremely glad to have done philosophy at university. I think it gives you a really a useful grounding in how to take arguments apart and see, okay, so your argument here rests on this. Now, what I'm not sure about is how useful it is in the sort of public sphere as such, because it's not like science that constantly moves forward. It's not like anyone you know, comes out of the philosophy department saying, you know, look, guys, I've discovered a new axiom. It is much more of a sort of solid body of knowledge which you know changes and expands and does its other, th- uh, but it's still. I, I don't. I don't feel that the need to have philosophers out in the public sphere d- defending their arguments in the same way. It's a set of tools that I think is really useful, rather than a uh, an expanding body of knowledge which needs to be ex- uh, dis- discussed and defended and advanced. Which, to some degree, I think science is. Although, having said that, I also think that as we spend an awful lot too much time talking about the new and controversial things on the edge of science which usually you know that have recently been discovered which quite often then turn out not to be true because obviously recent exciting discoveries are the least likely things to be true whereas stuff that's been known for 100 years is much more likely to be true and also is often more interesting anyway i'm wondering if when we talk about the need to have um, a discussion about ethics and ai and we're living in a, in a kind of post-christian society mm. whether we're going to have shared values or um, shared ethics that we can actually draw on? Or is it going to prove quite difficult because we no longer have that? It's extremely difficult. Well, uh, I take it you're talking about shared between humans rather than shared with the AI, yeah? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the, this, is the, this is the problem of building an AI that would be really powerful. Is you need to give... If what, what the people who are worried about, worried about it say is we need to build it in such a way not that it does a job we tell it to do because that will invariably go terribly wrong even if it seems innocuous you know they they talk about examples of thought examples obviously thought experiments but pretty convincing ones of ways in which like a chess playing ai could go disastrously wrong or one that builds paper clips you know so what you need to do instead is build an ai that wants to do what it thinks we would want it to do you know so like if if, if we say go and cure cancer if, if it was entirely like okay, well, I'll find the simplest and quickest way to do that. It could look, well, you know, biochemistry is quite hard. Hacking into the nuclear mainframe is quite easy. I'll do that, nuke everybody, no more cancer, job done. And what we want to do instead is find an AI that would carefully go, okay, so the easiest way to do this is to nuke everybody. Is that what you want? People are working on ways of doing that. But at its most basic, that sort of implies instilling human ethics and human values into an AI. And, you know, we spent 5,000 years or so arguing about what those values are. There's lots of interesting work about sort of experimental philosophy about people trying to work out what experimental ethics or something like that, about what trying to work out what how most people's ethical systems and frameworks work. But I guess to a first approximation, you just want to build something that is not going to kill everyone at first go. Um, yeah, so <laughs> utilitarianism seems to me the easiest one to quantify, if you sort of mean. But then I don't think most of us actually are utilitarians. I think there's an example in the book of this idea of torture versus dust specks and that if you know if you get a dust speck in your eye that lasts for a few seconds and makes you blink and is mildly annoying and if you give that to a sufficiently large number of people to a googleplex of people you know and so one to the one to the power of one followed by a hundred zeros or something like that which is a large number 
is that worse than one person being tortured excruciatingly for 50 years? And from a utilitarian point of view, it pretty much has to be because it's such a big number. And yet most of us go, no, of course the torture is worse. And so it's quite a, mm. intuitively, it's quite a tricky bullet to bite that one. Mm. I, I think having been through this book, I would I would have to say I go with the dust specs being worse than the torture, but I'm not sure everyone would. So the Bishop of Oxford um, was a member of the House of Lords Select Committee on Artificial Intelligence and came out of it saying that he thinks that what does it mean to be human is the deep question of our age. And I wondered if you thought there was a place for religious voices in this debate. So I noticed in the book that um, the Reverend Bayes came up with a very Mm. important theorem, but it seemed to me that he was coming at that as a mathematician and there wasn't a sense in there that he also kind of offered a theology alongside that. So I should come out as a thoroughgoing atheist at this (laughs) point. I think there is probably a a, a place for religious voices on the basis that there are religious voices in society and therefore religious people are part of society. I wouldn't want them privileged as having some insight ethically that the rest of us don't have i think do the jansenists or muslims or you know which which groups do we privilege do scientologists get a get a voice my own feeling is that there is no particular reason why the bishop of oxford should be a better place to judge what um being human means than any random philosophy professor or any random scientist or indeed any particular smart interested person who's thought about the issues you know well i sometimes worry about this debate generally is that people leap from this idea of artificial intelligence meaning artificial consciousness meaning these things will have a i don't want to say soul exactly but will have a conscious experience and therefore a moral value whereas that there is no need to assume that what we're talking about is machines that will be extremely competent at good at achieving things so like AlphaGo is extremely good at winning chess games Alpha Zero, you know, or, or um, Go games, or the uh, you know Google Maps is extremely good at getting you from point A to point B, and some vastly more intelligent version of that, or vastly more general version of that, that can achieve many different things. Uh, there is a AI Microsoft made the other day, which seems to be as good at hum- as humans are at understanding common sense phrases and like, uh, and these things. As they get better at these things that aren't we don't think of as computery, they will seem ever more human and have more general things, but. They will still be computers that have goals, and it's not inherently the case necessarily that they'll be conscious, and certainly not necessarily inherently the case that they will be, they'll have sort of a moral value in which they will feel good or bad about things, you know, or they feel pain, feel sorrow. It still, it still could be an entirely con- uh, consciousness-free thing. There was um, Nick Bostrom, the AI, well, the uh, philosophy professor actually at Oxford University, but who very much worries about these things. Um, once said it'd be perfectly possible to imagine a world post-human in which we, these AI, AI, these fantastically intelligent AIs, p- powerful as anything, you know, running this incredible world where the economy is vastly more powerful and uh, doubling every few seconds and the incredible sort of possible paradise, and yet there's no consciousness. Right. And it's, uh, he uses the phrase Disneyland with no children, you know, like it's just, just lots of things whirring away and looking very impressive, but no one to see it. There's no reason to think that wouldn't be the case. Mm. I was speaking to people about Lovelock's new, James Lovelock's new book this morning, um, in which he thinks will be replaced by this new race of super intelligent beings. And well, that may be true, but it doesn't mean that they will be conscious or have any moral worth or be, they'll be, you know, they'll be anything other than fancy clicking machines, which, so I, I feel there's still very much a place for humans. We want to try and maintain human values, human recognizably, even, even if not recognizably human bodies, recognizably human minds that care about the things we care about, however they are housed. 
Um, reading the book, um, I was thinking that some of these ideas um, are explored in film and books. I was really interested that you drew out um, Disney's Fantasia because mm-hmm. I'd never have associated that with AI, but it's a really helpful um, illustration. Um, obviously, Ian McEwan has a new novel mm-hmm. um, out which explores it. I wondered if there are particular um, films or books um, which you think or would recommend as this would be a great avenue into thinking about these questions. Yeah, okay. So just because I love it, I would strongly recommend Ian Banks's books. I think they are interesting. Uh, well, as with Asimov, you sort of have certain constraints when you're a writer about doing AI, doing you know, fiction, you, it has to have a story. And if you jet, if you, if, if your story is just, there's a future full of robots and they don't think anything like humans and that, then, then it's kind of empty and no one will relate to it. So I don't necessarily think that um, uh, Banks's stories are hugely, hugely realistic, but I think they, they capture the idea that I would agree with, which is if we do develop super intelligent AI, whether it's conscious or not, it will be utterly transformative humans will not be the dominant thing anymore like it um if you read like if you watch star trek you know they have these apparently super intelligent computers on them things but it's still a human captain running the ship it's like why this thing <laughs> why would you let him be in charge he thinks at ten thousandth the speed and he can't un- he, 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 it's just it, it's weird to me you know it doesn't sort of it's like you have these or you know they've got the androids like data or whatever it was whatever his name is and they're trying to learn what love is captain but like that thing is more is, is a more impressive and more powerful machine than than a human is why not let why not put that in charge it can just plug into the computers and tell them what to do so i think with banks's books the you there is a place for humans but they are basically sort of kept by the the minds they call them the the ais which are sort of the and the ais are they they run the worlds. They are they they control lives. They are they are sort of godlike, and humans exist at their pleasure. I mean the the, um, the comparison that I make in the book is the reason we are do better than chimpanzees is not because chimpanzees you know we're more more muscular. muscular chimpanzees are really muscular, um, and we are just more intelligent than them. And that small difference, we're like I don't know how you measure it exactly, but we are very, very tiny differences in DNA between us, which and that difference is enough to make us more intelligent. So the difference between them fishing for termites with a stick and us building rockets that go to the moon, um, or to Ju- you know to robots that go to Jupiter and things, and it's also the difference between us them going extinct in a few African countries and living in zoos and us living on literally every continent on the planet if you include a few people in science research places on antarctica and i feel like that's the comparison if you have any fiction that includes super intelligent ais that doesn't have them as basically these nothing and nothing is the same in society afterwards they we live and die at their sufferance and if we've made them in a made them wrongly then we'd die at their sufferance and if we made them correctly then we you know gloriously spread out through the galaxy like in Ian Banks's books. One of our writers for the series that we're doing, Jory Fleming, um, who was based at an artificial intelligence lab, um, writes at the end of his essay AI needs more people to join together to watch, listen, speak out. We shouldn't leave it to an algorithm to predict the future. We should create the future 
that we want. And he was basically wanting to um, widen the conversation and make sure that the ways in which AI develops so that we use it, there's some kind of public consultation or at least some kind of mechanism by which more people can join in the conversation. And I wondered if realistically you think that ordinary people can have any influence over how AI develops. So various answers to that in a way. On one level, like the book, the book is more about not these near these near future worries about you know will it take our jobs, will it lead to biases in algorithms, and will it you know um, will it create inequality and all that sort of stuff? But will it literally kill everyone? And I sort of think you don't need a public consultation on whether everyone wants to be killed. <laughs> Probably get fairly unanimous uh, feedback on that. On the other hand, there are these real near-term worries and they are, you know, all sorts of things. The economic impacts on the impact on public discourse. I was doing a thing about deep fakes and all that sort of so on recent stuff recently. And people do need to be aware of them. As for, you know, what, what do we mean by ordinary people? I don't, I, don't, I, I, I don't think most ordinary people want or need to particularly get involved with this in the same way that... I don't, you know, I, I th- your democratic duty is to go and vote once every once every two years or four years, and I don't think it is beholden on ordinary people to spend large parts of their life worrying about these things when they have their own lives to worry about. They've got children and jobs, and you know, I don't think we should then be demanding that they then go and read, you know, Nick Bostrom's book and have a strong opinion about the future of AI. I think it is beholden on policymakers. I think it's beholden on journalists and the media to get this stuff right and I think it's beholden on um, AI theorists and philosophers who are thinking about it to try and make sure that we channel these things as best we can in the right way and having said all that there's also the fact this is which I think is fundamental and overlooked that we are not dealing with like a little group of AI people who we can tell what to do we are dealing with a major industry spread across many many countries and if we say over here you're not supposed to do you're not supposed to behave like that there's nothing to stop them doing that in china you know there is there is a sort of um tragedy of the commons isn't quite right but a sort of sort of evolutionary pro- you know it doesn't there's too many there's too many things going on that you can't easily control it and if someone wants to build super intelligent ai or if someone wants to build all these various things they will do it and there's very little you can do to stop it so the best thing to do is try and come up with ways of making it safe or try and get you know and try and build build societal uh, um, mechanisms to keep us safe and keep the system working mm. um, I really liked how you drew out in the book um, effective altruism and so mm. you did come up with some really scary scenarios but actually um, the human desire to improve other people's lives came mm. out quite strongly um, could you say a bit about what effective altruism is and I guess a lot of our readers are um, involved in charitable giving that's sort of one of the purposes is of um, the church is, is to encourage that so could you explain what it is yeah sure so effective altruism is the idea I mean it's a really simple idea is, is using evidence and um, sort of numbers really statistics to make sure that when you give a pound to charity it does the most good it can and of course sometimes that's hard to compare whether you know your pound given to an educational charity does more or less good than a pound given to a, a cancer research charity and you know there there are things like uh, quality adjusted life years or disability adjusted life years that let you sort of do comparisons but it's not always obvious but what there are those are sort of edge cases and there are much more stark and obvious things like a pound given to a um, charity that donates bed nets to sub-saharan africa has a decent chance of saving a life you know you can buy it's something like every thousand pounds spent on bed nets in in those uh, anti-malarial bed nets will literally save a life whereas it will buy one fortieth of a 
guide dog for the blind in the UK, and like so that so there's there's very you know what what however important you think a guide dog is, you can think it's more efficient if you want to do with your money to to donate it overseas. It's, um, there's a thing they talk about which is a, the multiplier, the one uh, 100 times multiplier, which is basically if you give money to third charities in the developing world, they'll likely do about 100 times as much good as money going to uh, the Western world. Uh, they actually the blindness example was a really good one because there's. For the money spent on training and creating a training a guide dog, you could do something like a hundred uh, cataract operations or simple. Uh, I can't remember the guinea. Some sort of worm up the, in the eyes that makes some people blind in sub-Saharan Africa. You can cure so many cases of blindness, and so that again, so that so that's the sort of thing you're compare really starkly comparing, and it makes people uncomfortable. Like it feels good to give money to Cancer Research UK. But actually, you can do more money with do more good with your money giving it to um, deworming programs. You know. Mm. Um, so that's sort of heart of it. It comes from Peter Singer was originally his his idea in the seventies about look this is there there is a there's an ethical um, requirement for us in the West in the rich West with disposable income to just channel significant amounts of money to you know, where it can easily do good in the and rather than buy ourselves fripperies in you know H and M or whatever. And in the mid two thousands. This was formalised a bit more by people both in Oxford University and uh, in California, sort of trying to build, making charities that were themselves charity assessors. You know, like we're going to try and see which charities are, do the most good, and then we will direct any money comes to us, we will direct to these more efficient charities. Now, so far, that is, I think, f- not uncontroversial, but understandable. I certainly agree with it and give my money uh, diligently or nowhere near as much as I should to um, give well, which then gives it on to like, anti-malarial charities and de- deworming and so on. Where it gets a bit more controversial is that people argue that AI risk, the existential risk caused by everyone going, going extinct because of AI is a, a very valuable way to give, uh, give money. And the reason they say that is because it's not only that everyone, it could put, it make everyone go extinct, which you know kill so kill everyone, but also that if there is a if we if it doesn't kill everyone and we manage to spread out through the galaxy, then Nick Bostrom starts making the you know, various people must start making these numbers about like we could live on this many planets if we spread out and the you know or there'll be this many billions of people will live between now and this when this and you get these huge numbers of people who could live in the future. And if each if we give them moral value, then it's even a small chance of helping them live is on a utilitarian basis just vastly more important than helping everyone now. And, and it becomes, you know, then you start getting a bit, well, I, I mean, again, I can follow the logic and it's sort of unimpeachable in these ways, but do, I'm not comfortable with it in some way. Mm. Um, and, you know, you speak to people, I spoke to Peter Singer actually for the book and he said, like, there's a huge argument, like Derek Parfit went on about it for years, do future, fu- you know, possible future lives as opposed to, very predictable future lives have moral value of their own, or are they just a? Are we? Are they not not important from a moral point of view? And he said it's an ongoing bun fight in philosophy. But since it is an ongoing bun fight, you can't say with certainty that they have no moral value. Therefore, you have to sort of assign them some <laughs> chance of having moral value. Which, and then when you get into these ridiculous numbers like ten to the power fifty-eight, which is just a number, you know. Of, of humans who can live, which is just, you know, we're talking atoms in the universe sort of numbers, then it becomes valid to worry about the extinction of the human race as opposed to merely the death of everyone who is in the human race. Um, so, yeah, so it, it is complex and moral, morally weird and kind of hard to sort of swallow. But, yeah, I, I, it, is, it is, I think, has, has merit. 
I wondered what you made of the £150 million given to Oxford last month by Stephen Schwartzman, um, who warned technology left unaffected would trample over certain aspects of human behaviour and human opportunities. Um, what did you make of it when you when you saw that story? Fundamentally, it's it's what we're talking about, isn't it? This is, this is about, we need to work out, this is like ethics, ethics with a deadline, someone said it to me, so, so described it to me. You've got to work out what it is that humans want out of the world before we give it something that could entrench those values very permanently and rapidly. Someone pointed out that if we'd built an AI in 1800 and entrenched the values of 1800, this is exactly what humanity should look like and make it it very noble and brilliant. And well, we've accidentally entrenched slavery forever there, you know. And it's an extremely complicated thing to do. We want, want something that represents our ethics now, but also can change with us and allow our ethics to grow in future. And yeah, I mean, it seems to me that investing 150 million pounds in ethics, it's not going to do any harm. I mean, whether that is from an effective altruism point of view, whether that's the most effective way to do good now, but they, there would be a bit of a fight in the effective altruist community about whether that is, you know, maybe that's exactly what we should be doing, investing it in Future of Humanity Institute to go and argue these things over. So my final question um, is that there are some quite overwhelming moments um, in the book when you spell out some really kind of terrifying scenarios. Um, so I guess I'm wondering how worried should we be? <laughs> okay, so as I, th- as I think I mentioned at the beginning of all this, if you do these surveys of AI researchers, which Bostrom did and someone else, one of the rationalists did as well, and I think there's been a couple others, you end up with this... This timeline that probably in, well, almost, well, very, very likely in my children's lifetime, possibly in mine, um, we will see one of these, a, a super intelligent AI. And there is a real risk that it will have profound and damaging impacts. And if you multiply these things, you know, they say there's a 20% chance, I think, and a 90% chance for existing in my children's lifetime. So if you, you know, so we're, we're talking about roughly a 15 to 20% chance of. If, if we take these numbers at face value, uh, then we will, you know, 15 to 20% chance of my children dying because of AI going terribly wrong. And, you know, that sounds shocking and quite hard to get your head around. I, I also, you know, I'm happy as a sort of, to sort of like say, well, like, these are computer scientists who may possibly be overstating the case, the risks of computer science. So, I mean, like, you might want to say, well, you know, let's knock an order of magnitude off the likelihood just to sort of be conservative about it i mean you could equally say well maybe they're saying that they're being over overly panglossian about it and everything will be fine and actually they're saying everything will be fine and actually it'll be more likely to be a disaster but let's just on a sort of intellectual conservatism sort of way say okay come on this is this sounds pretty mad let's knock an order of magnitude off it so we're then dealing with a one to two percent chance of my children dying of in uh ai apocalypse and for comparison, the odds of my children dying in a car crash or some sort of road traffic accident, either one of them, is about 0.5%. And we don't think it's silly to worry about that. We don't think it's silly to dedicate some non-negligible fraction of government resources and university time, all these things, to ways of uh, making roads safer, making cars less safer, you know, just generally reducing, you know, teaching the Green Cross code, you know, that sort of thing. It, feel, it feels like that is the level of risk that society is prepared to worry about, you know? And it's not exactly the same thing in that, like, that's, that these are, we're talking about the risk for an individual, but the, as opposed to a, a societal risk of everyone dying. But in terms of the risk per, for an individual, it, your, you know, your risk of your children dying in this way, the, the maths works out the same. 
I feel like that is fine then. Let's let's dedicate. Let, no, let's not say all AI research must be stopped because this is going to kill everyone. But also, let's not say this is silly sci-fi nonsense. Let's just la- let's just laugh it off. Let's let's let as is happening now, some number of clever people in universities study it, trying to think of ways to make it safe, um, and try and sort of keep an eye on the horizon and see what see what's going on. And that that seems to me a entirely sensible and reasonable way of going about things. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.